Welcome to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. Witness Lee, a servant of the Lord for over seven decades on five continents, culminated his ministry with a 21-year book-by-book exposition of the entire Bible, which he called a life study. This life study is the basis of our program today, which includes short portions of the spoken messages given by Witness Lee. Now, let's join today's life study. Obadiah is a short book in the Old Testament. The central thought of Obadiah is that Jehovah's dealing with Esau, issues in Jacob's victory, and possession for the kingdom of God in the age of restoration. This is Matt Miller with Ron Kangas for our one and only life study from the minor prophet Obadiah. Ron, to understand Obadiah, we have to understand the relationship between Jacob and Esau. Could you give us the background before we go to Witness Lee in today's life study? Uh, I'll do my best to say a little bit that is helpful. The reason we need to dwell on what the Bible says concerning Esau in relation to Jacob is because in the book of Obadiah, God's dealing with Edom is very much expressive of his attitude toward Esau and what Esau represents or signifies in his sight. Edom is the country. Esau is the person. Uh, The person eventually, through his descendants, produced a country that was not positive in God's sight and was hostile toward Israel. Well, just review the elementary facts in Genesis. Esau and Jacob were the twin sons of Isaac with Rebekah. And, as a fact, Esau was the firstborn. Jacob, from the time he was in the womb, throughout the early decades of his life, was grasping for something. He was a supplanter, a heel holder, wanting what Esau had, especially the birthright and the blessing, both of which God intended for Jacob to have, but not in the way that um, Jacob supposed. The point is that there was enmity, there was hostility between the two. At one point, Esau was out to kill his brother. He had deceived him, or so Esau felt, of the birthright. And then he cheated him, there's no doubt about that, of his blessing. So this is the simple historical background in Genesis. We see clearly in the Genesis narrative that God's hand is upon Jacob. God's purpose is with Jacob. God eventually is called the God of Jacob. Jacob is transformed to be Israel. God is called the God of Israel. Jacob's descendants are the patriarchs who were the, humanly speaking, the source of the tribes of Israel. Uh, Esau is there. Esau has his fleshly, worldly development. But Esau has no standing in God's economy, in God's purpose. In Romans, Paul, expressing the Lord's mind, especially in his sovereign mercy, makes it emphatically clear, and he quotes the scriptures to this effect, that God says, Esau, I hated. Jacob, I loved. 
That is as clear and unequivocal as it gets. We tend to look for the cause of God's loving or hating in the object. Oh, there's something hateful about this person, so God hates him. There's something lovable about him, God loves him. This is a mistake in our approach. God is absolutely sovereign. If he chooses Jacob, and if he refuses Esau, no one has any ground to express any opinion. Clearly, God, having chosen Jacob, will stand with him and his descendants, for his, that is, God's kingdom. Esau, who became Edom, represents the fleshly opposition, the unregenerated old man, opposing God's people, rejoicing when God's people suffer, being hostile to God's people. This is what Esau represents. This is what Edom represents. Well, God, of necessity, disciplined his people Israel. They needed to be disciplined. And he used the nations, including Edom, to discipline them. But the nations, being fallen and perverted, always go too far. Therefore, eventually, God comes in, having judged, purified, and recovered and restored Israel. God comes in to judge the nations for their excessive judgment upon Israel. So this is part of the background. In my musing over this, I was actually impressed, Matt, and touched and enlightened with the spiritual significance of this in the typology and in the spiritual application. Esau signifying the old and fleshly man struggling against God's chosen and spiritual people. Do we not have an Esau within us? Yes, we do. Do we not have this part of us? And not only do we have the Esau element, you know, the unregenerated old man, the man of the flesh, Esau produces a nation, Edom, which as a nation is part of the world system and part of the kingdom of Satan. So now we have the world of the old and fleshly man struggling against God. At the same time, in our spirit, we have been born of God We have the life of God, we are the children of God, and we're in the kingdom of God. And spiritually, subjectively, and experientially, we do need God's judgment upon the Esau element and the Edom world kingdom in us. And God's vindicating, God's expanding, God's establishing the Jacob, the Israel, the regenerated, transformed part for God's kingdom. Objectively, prophetically, and eventually, eschatologically, in the future, the Lord will fulfill the prophecy in this book. He will deal with all the nations because the day of the Lord will come for that purpose. He will judge Edom. He will bring salvation out of Zion. Israel will be restored, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is part of what is going on in the world situation, and eventually it will be fulfilled point by point. 
since this is a life study, the life part of the life study opens the way for us to realize in the experience of life, we are standing with God, with God's judgment, with God's sovereignty, with God's selection, with God's intervention, and with God's kingdom. And we agree with the Lord in judging the Esau element and the Edom kingdom in us so that experientially we may be able to enjoy what is prophesied in Obadiah 21. And saviors will come up on Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be Jehovah's. Let me just add this. In particular, it says, judge the mountain of Esau. A mountain is something elevated, something exalted. If you go back to verse 3 and verse 4, the arrogance of your heart has beguiled you, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is lofty, who says in his heart, who will bring me down to the ground? What arrogant boasting of the Esau element of the Edom kingdom. Verse 4 continues, Though you set yourself on high like the eagle, and though you make your nest among the stars, I will bring you down from there, declares Jehovah. I will bring you down. You put your nest up with the stars. You exalt yourself. This is Esau. God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, will bring Esau down, will bring Edom down, and when everything has been brought down, the kingdom will be Jehovah's. So I have to say, Matt, for the first time in my life, I love the book of Obadiah. (laughs) Well, Ron, I appreciate your opening word in Obadiah because it really uh, brings it all into a nutshell. Uh, Let's go to Witness Lee now for the life study from Obadiah. Verse 1 says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, We have heard a report from Jehovah, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Arise, and let us rise up against it for battle. Indeed, I have made you small among the nations. You are very despised. The arrogance of your heart has beguiled you. Let's go to Witness Lee for today's life study. Obediah in Hebrew means the servant of Jehovah. They are subject This is important. Jehovah's dealing with Esau and Jacob's victory for the kingdom of Jehovah. And the kingdom of Jehovah is just the manifestation of Christ. Jehovah's dealing with Esau issues in Jacob's victory and possession for the kingdom of God in the age of restoration. Stirring up they are nations to rise up against Israel for battle. This means if they are against Israel, they are against God. Because of its arrogance, Jehovah will bring it down from its dwelling in the lofty clefts of the rock of the ground. Esau, or Edom, was built in a hilly country. A lot of rocks, a lot of clefts. The people of uh, Edom were proud of that because they are higher, you see, they are more lofty than others. 
That's their boast. God was to destroy Edom with his wise men. Dismaying his mighty men and cutting off each one from the mountain of Esau. Ron, I know you addressed this a little bit in your opening word, but I'd like to take something from this picture of Esau and his arrogance, this nation of Edom and their pride, that we could learn from it in our experience today. I also feel that we should emphasize this in light of God's coming judgment upon pride and human presumption and on God's determination to bring in his kingdom. Esau, as we pointed out, signifies the unregenerate old man living in the flesh, struggling against the people of God who are chosen by him and who are in Christ, the spiritual ones. And the Lord, through the prophet Obadiah, whose name means the servant of Jehovah, says something emphatically at the beginning of this short book, especially in verse 3, it speaks of the arrogance of your heart. Here the Lord is touching something essential and intrinsic. As Brother Lee points out, literally and physically, the dwelling places of the Edomites, at least to some extent, were lofty and in the clefts. But the Lord is particularly concerned with the attitude of heart. Actually, the clefts and the nests high among the stars are inward. They're in the arrogance of the heart, the same in principle as with Satan in Isaiah 14. You have said in your heart, I will exalt myself. And verse 3 goes on to say, the arrogance of your heart has beguiled you. Uh, This is very convicting. We do know from the scriptures and from our experiences that the devil is a deceiver. He deceives the nations. There are deceiving spirits. There is no doubt a host of objective, outward, deceptive elements. But our heart, with its arrogance, can beguile us. This is serious. We need light on this. And then the verse goes on, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is lofty, who says in his heart, now this presumptuous, audacious speaking in the heart, who will bring me down to the ground? As if there's none higher than I in the whole universe. This is the thought of the ungodly, of those who have no regard for the Lord's supremacy and his absolute sovereignty. So the Lord comes in after diagnosing the situation in verse 3. Though you set yourself on high like the eagle, and though you make your nest among the stars, I will bring you down from there. So you have a question in verse 3. Who will bring me down? Uh, Edom would ask, who will bring me down? Implying, no one will bring me down. But the Lord answers, I will bring you down. I will bring you down from there. Before the Lord can establish his kingdom, which he does by the end of this book, because the last verse ends, and the kingdom will be Jehovah's. 
before the Lord can establish his kingdom, he must bring down every high, exalted thing. But recently, in my travels abroad, I was impressed with, we have to admit, a somewhat unusual verse for one's consideration. It's in Luke 16. This is, if not an exact quote, it's accurate to the thought. The Lord Jesus says, That which is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That which is exalted. Not only he who exalts himself, but that which is exalted. Anything which human beings exalt is an abomination in the sight of God. And musing on that verse caused me to recall a portion early in Isaiah, I think it's in chapter 2, where the Lord comes in, judging the high things, and then speaks prophetically, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord alone. In a very real sense, man, this is what we're standing for, that the Lord alone would be exalted, that his kingdom would fill the whole earth, and this entails the judgment on Edom, on that part of the world system that stands in opposition to God's people and to God's rule. This also entails God's judgment upon the Esau element in us, anything in our fallen nature that would exalt anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say again, I'm thankful for this opportunity to serve with you on this life study. I love the little book of Obadiah. I love its exposure of our fallen nature. I love the assurance it brings that the kingdom is Jehovah's. The day of Jehovah is coming. All the high things will be brought down, and only our Lord will be exalted. Praise Him. Amen, Ron. Let me read the final verse of Obadiah. It says, And saviors will come up on Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be Jehovah's. Let's go back to Witness Lee for the positive conclusion to this little book of Obadiah. Saviors will come up on Mount Zion to judge the uh, mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be Jehovah's. This has a little story in history at the Maccabees' time. That was 170 or so years before Christ, when Maccabees made a victory over the northern king. At that time, the Maccabees will be the saviors, and they will come over and met down to judge the Mount of Esau. The Maccabees, they will take Zion, the holy mountain, as their kind of ground to judge Esau. This becomes the kingdom of Jehovah. That means the Maccabees enlarge their territory in their victory. This will be much more fulfilled in glory at the time of restoration for the kingdom of God. The victory by the Maccabees was also a type of the victory which Israel will make right before the age of restoration. So, by all means, you could see the minor prophets, each one 
had this kind of a thought, this kind of idea that Israel being sinful. Due to this, Israel will suffer God's chastisement by the nations. And the nations did something in excess, a little over the limit. So God came in to judge the nations. And these always issues in what? Issues in the fact that Israel will win, will win. And Israel will increase in its territory for God's kingdom on this earth, especially in the restoration time. Well, Ron, we don't have much time left, so I'm going to ask you to just give us a brief summary here of this word, how Witness Lee applied the saviors in Obadiah 21 as the Maccabees before Christ came as a picture of the end of this age. Uh, In essence, what Brother Lee did is to make a dual application. The first application was to point out that historically, this word was fulfilled at the time of the Maccabees. When these warriors, uh, led by Judas Maccabeus, who physically was you know, a giant among men, they fought such a noble battle, defeated the hosts of Antiochus Epiphanes, and maintained God's interests on the earth. That typifies or signifies the second and really the, the higher degree of fulfillment will be at the end of the age, when the kingdom is about to be restored to Israel, the mighty ones raised up by God will fight for and stand for God's interests and open the way and prepare the way for the kingdom to be manifested on the earth. Prophetically and historically, this is the twofold fulfillment. I would just add a footnote continuing the line of the spiritual application, offering this up as fellowship in the Spirit. It's hard for me not to relate the Maccabees and to those sons of Israel who will be the future fulfillment. It's hard for me not to liken these to the overcomers among the Lord's children today. And the Lord calls for the overcomers in the book of Revelation And it's significantly that these saviors will come up on Mount Zion. And spiritually speaking, Mount Zion signifies the overcoming portion among God's people. It signifies the reality of the body of Christ within the church. I do believe, Matt, that along with the historical and the prophetic fulfillments will be a kind of spiritual application that we, if we accept God's judgment upon the Esau element in us and the Edom kingdom in us and allow the Lord to pull down every highly exalted thing in us and establish his kingdom in us, then he can make us by his grace the overcoming ones, standing on Mount Zion, living in the reality of the body of Christ, fighting for the kingdom of God and bringing in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. I do believe that historically, prophetically, and spiritually, we have touched something of the intrinsic significance of the divine revelation in this little book 
of Obadiah, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to explore it with you for the benefit of the seeking ones in our radio audience. And Ron, I'm thankful that you could explore it with me. I'm really glad you're in the studio with me. Thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. I think Obadiah will always have a special place in my heart after today. I I never realized there was so much in this book. Well, we appreciate you listening today, and we hope that you would give us a call and let us know what your response is to what you heard today. You can call us at 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 1-888-543-3788. We'd love to let you know how you can get the printed materials, uh, more information available on the internet. There's a lot more to let you know about. You can contact us or just drop us an email to radio at lsm.org. On behalf of Ron Kangas, this is Matt Miller. Thanks for listening today. Witness Lee's remarkable commentary on the life of Abraham, taken from the life study of Genesis, is now available from Living Stream Ministry in a single volume entitled Abraham Called by God. Abraham Called by God by Witness Lee is available at Christian bookstores everywhere, or you can order by calling 1-888-543-3788.